Okay, I see the fault. <laughs> so you saw it, Doc? Yes, I saw it. Okay, cool. I'm going to share the link. We are live, but I will share the link um, in the private chat there if y'all want to share. Okay, Janet, take it away. <laughs> Welcome to Social Y'all know how we do. Welcome to Social I am so sorry, y'all. My apologies. I just have to give them that five minutes of that. Yeah, that, that, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of Sociable, where today we are talking about race and the COVID-19 vaccine. My name is Janet. I'm Toya. I am Latoya. And our awesome esteemed guest, if you'll introduce yourself by saying your name. David Hodge. All right, all right, all right. So ladies, what we working on this week? Well, first of all, I want to say shout out to Jazz. She's always viewing um, Toya Bass. So glad to see you guys. Thanks for being here. So um, I guess I'll go first. I'm working on, I've been working on some graphics um, in preparation for a couple of live shows I'm helping with this week. Nice, nice. Um, I've been working on some um, promotions I got going on, started a new mentorship program called the Business Bestie. So I've got that promotion out there. Um, also, too, working on graphics and stuff like that um, and just doing a lot of networking. Nice. And I'm currently in the same process of getting ready for December month of social media. Um, second of Lee completed a project for my church with a brochure and some flyers for Georgia Give Day that's coming up December 1st. And in addition, I'm preparing for um, a new marketing campaign that I'm about to put out. So just working, working, working the best way we can um, to maintain in our current environment and situation. And Dr. Hodge, what are you working on? I'm working on catching up. <laughs> I had a, I had a eye, um, eye um, injury about five weeks ago, and it has given me a whole lot of frustration he, trying to heal. And so I fell behind. Last week was very busy. Last week I presented at a, what's called a public health ethics intensive at Tuskegee University. And Saturday before that, I presented at Harvard University um, a panel discussion on on, on a lot of what we'll be talking about today. So, um, so I'm just I'm just trying to catch up, just researching and writing. I think you need a little bit of a rest. That is true. But, but Toya Toya asked, so I said yes. Yes, yeah, so I can't uh, rest yet. Well, let's jump right into this conversation. Let me tell the people a little bit about you. As I said, we're walking in the esteemed Dr. David Augustine Hodge, which we found out he's from Rock City, the Virgin Islands, but that's a, that's a personal conversation. <laughs> and he currently serves as the Associate Director of Education for the National Center for Bioethics and Research and Healthcare at Tuskegee University. In addition to his academic and administrative duties, Dr. Hodge is a researcher, author, and editor. This includes serving as the senior associate editor for the Central Journal of Healthcare, Sciences and Humanities. For nearly two decades prior, he provided leadership to the religion and philosophy department at Florida Memorial University in Miami. Man, you don't travel, you don't get all over the place. Okay, that's another. 
During a portion of his time, he also taught moral theory and bioethic courses at Nova Southern University in Fort Lauderdale. Dr. Hodge is presently in the research and writing and stays with two books, Paragramic Bioethics and Intersectional Public Health Ethics, Bioethics, and African-American Springer Press, and Jesus, Trust, and Virtue Ethics. Welcome, Dr. Hodge. Thank you, thank you, Vexia, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, great. So tell us a little bit about even some of the research that you just presently um, finished doing in, in correlation with um, COVID and the vaccine. You know, the the um, the uh, Harvard, Harvard. Some of our colleagues at Harvard University contacted us recently and asked us if we will and join with them to um, to unpack the low number of blacks in clinical trials because of an article we published on African Americans in clinical trials. Uh, so. Um, that article has uh, has gone around the world a few times, and in there we try to demonstrate why there's only there's less than five percent participation in clinical trials. Um, there's good reasons for it, of which I will discuss as we go through, especially if you have particular questions. But there's good reasons for the low number of participation in clinical trials, and a major part is the major distrust that African-Americans have for um, um, medical research, uh, even clinicians and so on. Uh, so there's, a, there's justification for the distress and that, that justification kind of, kind of come at a time where we, are, we really don't have time for the, for the justification, although the justification is, is valid, is valid justification. The veracity of the, uh, the of any argument that demonstrates that um, blacks have been uh, used, misused, and abused in America, in American public, American public health system, um, cannot be challenged. If the documents are there, the, the the history is there, and history being what it is, twenty twenty, you can't shift it. It's a fact. And um, I published an article. Um, some time back called, um, and you can find it on the net, it's called uh, The Ethics of Ambiguity and the Ethics of Belief, in which I talked about um, facts are never ambiguous. Facts are always what they are. Now, how we interpret the facts can lead to ambiguity, can lead to um, a kind of crisis of belief. So it's upon the, it's upon us to question um, interpretations, not necessarily question facts, but to question interpretations of facts. We, you know, one of the things I do is I teach a Bible study online on Facebook. I started teaching it for my family, and um, because my son is still in South Florida. When, uh, when Toya knew him, he was a little dude. He's younger than her, brother, her little brother. Um, he's 28 now. He's a teacher in Homestead. But um, I try to teach teach um, Bible study to my to my family to my kids, and the first day we signed on, we had three hundred and fifty people on there. 
Yeah, little David. <laughs> we had, he's not little anymore. He's about 6'1". Um, but we had 350 people on there. And I said, wow, this is a ministry. So anyway, I started teaching in Genesis. Um, I'm still in Genesis. But I started in Genesis chapter 1, which took about took about um, four weeks to get out of Genesis chapter 1. Um, so I'm teaching it the way I would teach it at a university. I'm teaching it, I'm teaching it to kind of show that um, the strengths and the weaknesses of interpretations. The reason I say this is because some of our inter some of the problems that we have, even the atheists, you know, I don't object to hold on to atheistic beliefs, but some of the problems we have is based upon interpretation. Things are there. The God is who God is, but how do you interpret God? That is the question. So the problem has always been not in whether or not God is God, but the question has always been how do we interpret God? And so, for example, I don't, I don't believe there's a flood that covered the entire planet, and I have good reasons and justification for that belief. But um, um, to say that God participated in a flood that killed all of these babies, I don't see that as a loving God. But that is the perception based upon those who were there and how they interpreted God. So the same thing is true in terms of facts. People interpret facts in certain kind of ways. And um, that now leaves us justifiable, that is African-Americans, the African-Americans justifiable in the rejection of medical research. Now, that rejection, like I said, comes at a time in which we need, <laughs> to, we need to be a part of medical research because this COVID-19 is a serious thing. It's killing thousands, hundreds of thousands of people at this level, and it has infected millions of people just in this country alone. Um, so, so uh, beyond a million people in this country alone. So, so therefore, um, whether or not we should be involved in the clinical trials becomes an extremely important conversation. Now, <clears throat> what are some of the reasons why there is mistrust? Um, the number one reason that people point to is the United States Public Health Service syphilis study at Tuskegee. In 1932, between 1932 and 1972, the government was involved in unethical research on African-American males in Macon County, Alabama, in which they, the name of this study was untreated syphilis in the Negro male. So the whole intent was not to treat these men. There was a previous uh, study of white men in Oslo, Norway, in which they treated or attempted to treat those men. But the idea in, in uh, Tuskegee, or the idea, uh, idea in Macon County, was to watch the refuse to treat them, set up a surveillance system in which if they tried to get away and have somebody else to treat them, in which they will be shut down, and to watch the, in the way in which the disease will progress through these men, and after the disease killed them, or however they would die beyond that, then do an autopsy on them to see if white, in, white insides, internal organs, are devastated in a similar way to black internal organs. So by 1940, um, between 1944, 46, when they discovered the cure for syphilis, they did not treat the men. Now, some argue that the syphilis, the, the, the penicillin would not have helped anyway, but there were men who became syphilitic from the control group who came into the syphilitic group. They could have treated them, but they refused to treat them. And this went on until 1972. 
when it was discovered and it became a big issue. So that's what that's the reason for people typically point to. So in our question answer period, I will I could say more about that. But that is not the totality of reasons. The history of medical exper ex experimentation on Black people in America goes on for a whole lot more years. For example, between 19 and 18, I'm sorry, 18, um, after 1845 and 1850, Dr. J. Marion Sims in Montgomery, Alabama, he did uh, surgical practice, surgical techniques, trying to repair what was called what is called the vesicle vaginal uh, fistula or the rectal vaginal fistula um, on black women, slave women, namely. Um, Betsy, Lucy, and Anarcha, and some others. So he did, he practiced on black women without the use of anesthesia. Now, some would argue, well, anesthesia was not widely available at the time. And, and, and in fact, um, part of that is true. But even when it became available, Dr. Sims chose not to use it and said that these women, the pain that these women were feeling was not that bad. Well, if that's the case, then why are these women being held down on the operating table? As a matter of fact, the 30 male white doctors who were there, they walked away. Um, they couldn't take it. So um, the pain that these women in, were in, because they were, they laid them down in their, on their, not laid them down, but they had them on their knees, on their, on their arms, and I, I I hate to, to use this kind of metaphorical, but doggy style position. So they had them in that position and they would enter the woman's vagina from behind, that is Dr. Dr. Um, Sims, and, and go in and try to repair the fistula. And he tried several times and it didn't work. It took a long time before it worked. And nevertheless, after he was able to heal these women, um, of this incontinence that they have. I think I better explain what that is. That 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 um, during childbirth, if it's traumatic, or during rape, if it's traumatic, there's uh, um, the the uh, it's possible for there to like a child's head to rub on the uterus and rub such a such a way that a tear would occur that and continue to rub and a tear would occur in the bladder, which means that bladder would leak urine into uterus and down to the vagina, which led for to an incontinence. And, and this, this uh, literal urination on herself um, was created a public ostracism where, you know, who wants to be around a, a woman who is constantly urinating on herself, there's like nonstop. So it was a, a very painful, if not psychologically, if not physically painful, psychologically painful way to live. The rectal vaginal fistula is when the similar thing happens with the rectum. So therefore feces is coming through the vagina. So there was a, a, a terrible, it was a terrible condition that black women and white women faced. Um, but notice he did not use white women to practice, he used black slave women. And then um, 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 after he perfected his system, then he went to New York and established the New York um, City Hospital for Women. And he worked on primarily white women. Then he went over to Europe and he did work there and he became very famous and very wealthy. He was the best known of the doctors. As a matter of fact, today he's called as a father of gynecology. And the specula, that is the instrument that is used on women when they're having various kinds of intrusive uh, vaginal 
um, what do you call it? When doctors treat you, um, um, when they have that, 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 the specula is the sim specula that, that uh, when women are having, um, what do you call it? I think that you women have on a regular basis, just slipped my mind. Huh? Smear. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so that instrument it was perfected by stems. So, um, so, so, so that's one. That's another level of distress. And by the way, just just for the fun of it, um, a doctor was from Macon County. So, so she was only like uh, eighteen years old at the time. So when she went back, she had a son. She had a, um, at least one son. So when she went back to Macon County. Um, there's good reason to believe that her son, or at least her grandson, was involved in the syphilis study. So here's one family who were involved in the two most horrific medical experimentation on black people in America. You see, so you've got to be kidding. You've got to be kidding. There's, there's, there's another little part to that is to this day, when this is 2020. And do you not know that still today in 2020, well-trained medical doctors still give black women less pain medication than their white counterparts because, and this is statistically true, because they believe that white women, black women can tolerate pain better. Now, how is this helpful? Now, that is the more there's other um, medical issues that I could talk about, and more recent, more recently, the um, the, the, the female uh, fibroid tumors. Thirty-three percent. There's a great chance that one of the three of you have fibroid tumors, right? Because thirty-three percent of Black women have fibroid tumors. Even my own family, about uh, three of my sisters and I have four sisters, have had fibroid tumors. My mother has had fibroid tumors, so. Historically, the way you deal with fibroid tumors is one way early on is you sometimes it would remove the the uterus or remove the um the sorry the um the fallopian tube or the um um uh, um any way that is simplest to maintain the fertility of the woman for white women for black women hysterectomy. So that's a form of sterilization. So most black women, or I should say many black women, on the way sterilization would remove the hist of the of the uter the entire uterus package that would create uh, for for a hysterectomy. And this did they didn't do the same for white women. Well white women they had less invasive procedures. And this is well documented. So given this, why should black people trust the, the cl clinical trials? Why should they trust the medical research community given their history with what they've been doing? Now, um, so a few weeks ago, the president of Xavier University in New Orleans and, and Dillard University in New Orleans, they sent out a, a notice that their students should participate in clinical trials. These are HBCUs, these are black schools. But one, one parent got it and she said, we will not allow our children to be guinea pigs. Interestingly enough, Mr. Herman Shaw, who was one of the men in the syphilis study, 
who was the spokesman in 1997, April 1997, when President Bill Clinton gave the apology to the men and their families for the syphilis study. Um, he was the one who spoke and introduced um, President Clinton. He used an exact words. He said, we were guinea pigs, guinea hogs. This is how we were used. So therefore, ladies and gentlemen, the, um, the, um, the atrocities that has been placed upon Black people is, has been such that under what conditions should Black people be interested in participating in clinical trials? Now, um, shortly, a couple hours ago, I was interviewed by Birmingham News, and uh, the question was put to me, um, well, but, but are, you, are you saying that Blacks should not participate in clinical trials for COVID? I said, no, I'm not saying that. I said, a week ago, I was saying that. But when we look at um, um, about a week ago, when Pfizer came out with 90% effectiveness in clinical trials, and um, Moderna came out a couple of days ago with 94.5% effectiveness in clinical trials, it will be irresponsible for me as a bioethicist, as a public health ethicist, as a newer ethicist, to tell Black folk not to participate in clinical trials because the, the, the imbalance, the weight is too much. However, now, um, um, and I'm not even saying not to participate in clinical trials. I'm saying not to, uh, for Black people to avoid taking the vaccine because we are dying at, a, at twice the rate than our white people. So let me say something about that. Um, a few when, back in March, when we discovered that Albany, Georgia, was had a higher prevalence for um, for COVID nineteen and COVID nineteen death than other places, a smaller community like Albany, Georgia. Um, Mr. Anderson Cooper of Anderson Cooper three hundred and sixty on CNN, he said, "What is happening in Albany, Georgia, is criminal." I I disagree with him. In principle, um, because I think he's right, but in principle, there needs to be a clear understanding of what he's actually trying to say. And I think this is what he's actually trying to say. Um, it's not so much that co coronavirus or COVID-19 is criminal. I mean, how is a vi virus criminal, right? Uh, a virus doesn't have a moral rational, even emotive way of thinking. A virus doesn't pick and choose morally. Um, oh, by the way, there's just a little sidebar. Uh, back to the flood thing. If, if God killed all the animals, except those in the ark, why would God kill animals who have no moral content? Animals don't do things morally. So how are they bad? Right? Um, how do you kill fish? <laughs> how do you how do you kill how do you drown fish? But that's a sidebar. That's just have a little fun. Okay, so back to Albany. Is not the virus is not criminal. What is criminal is that for years, and I do mean for years, black ex excess deaths. There is about seven excess death categories, including hypertension, diabetes, obesity, HIV, um, some certain mental health conditions, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's is a major one. Um, blacks have led 
in ex uh, cardiovascular too. Blasts of lead in, in excess deaths. Excess deaths are the deaths that are over the amount of deaths of the white equivalent. So given the amount of whites and minor blacks, there should be no more than 13 to 14% black deaths for cardiovascular disease, for um, hypertension, for diabetes. But the fact that black deaths are like 50 to 80% in those numbers, that, that shows a public health problem where, wherein is not so much that these diseases are targeting black people or even the, in their diet targeting black people, but if you live in a food diet like Tuskegee, for example, where the only food place is Piggly Wiggly, that doesn't necessarily have the best fruit and vegetables and so on. If you live in a food desert, and if you live in a mental health desert or a medical desert where you do not have access to healthcare and so on, for example, see uh, if the if if with the vaccine, if the vaccine is going to be given by uh, CVS or Walgreens, right? If you go into some black communities in um, in Miami, it's hard to find a, a CVS or Walgreens or Walmart. They're doing better, yes, they are. But you can't find a Publix, Publix in Liberty City. You can't, you can't, you can't find. Um, you'll find something like Save a Lot or something of that sort. But you're not going to find the best. So therefore, blacks live in a desert. Now, and then in terms of healthcare, black is a blacks are at the bottom of the healthcare ladder. So what is criminal is that, um, is that the yes, that's right. You can find the liquor stores. That's another. That's a, you just open up another category, Sister Latoya. Okay. Now, what is criminal is that. Because of these historical issues that have been allowed to linger, what you do find in the black community is a higher prevalences of these what's called social determinants of health and these negative um, um, uh, problems that's causing death. So you have these higher prevalences of these, and that means that black people are already in danger, black and people, of, uh, Hispanics too, so people of color. If that is the case, then they're vulnerable. And if they're vulnerable, then they're more susceptible to epidemics and pandemics like HIV and whatever else because they're vulnerable. So when any pandemic comes, they're prepared to, be, to receive the worst because they're vulnerable. Let me give you an analogy that would be helpful here. Every, all of Louisiana knew that the ninth, the ninth and 10th Ward of New Orleans, that the levees were weak. They knew it. But they were also in the poorer areas. So therefore, when Katrina came, Katrina is not a moral, not a moral thing. Katrina is a hurricane. Just like just like a virus, it doesn't have a moral intent. It's coming at you, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. So when Katrina came through, and all of the all of all it needed was was enough wind and rain, and that exposed the vulnerability and susceptibility of those who lived in that vicinity. Therefore, they died, and they were left behind. And some, am I allowed to cuss? Some jackasses, pastors, and preachers actually came out and said yes, that God, yes, too late, but that's what they are, that God sent 
Katrina because of the voodoo or the sinful nature of blacks in New Orleans. That is some stupid foolishness. Why? Because, um, ladies and gentlemen, how the how the heck is the, the wealthy who ran and who profited, yes, from the liquor stores, ABC, those who profited from the um from the um uh the uh whatever whatever pathological systems they had there, they caught a plane and they were out of there. The only people left behind were the poor and the broke. So therefore, God is attacking them because they're poor and broke. Same thing now. There's some stupid preachers who are saying things like God sent the coronavirus because of the wickedness of America. Well, if, if God wanted to deal with the wickedness of America, God would have started in the White House. God would have started in where a wickedness spread. Right now, the president is playing golf rather than dealing with the amount of people who are dying. So I'm going to stop there and and open it up for any questions you will ha you may have, and I will do my best to respond. Well, I'll tell you what, it's, it's so, it hurts my heart to know that we were looked at as such disposable goods. You know what I mean? Like, for them to want to use us in experiments, and you're right, because I am one of those people that I do not trust everything clinically they say, because I'm not trying to be your experiment. And I don't think they're always very truthful with us as far as what what they're trying to do. I have noticed that they haven't cured anything for a very long time, and I don't think they want to because there's no money in curing you. There's a lot of money in keeping you alive while you suffer through it. We can make you comfortable with it, but we're not curing it. And that stuff like that makes me very upset. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, um, the, you know, when I first started to speak in 26, 2017, um, my, my brother, my brother was diagnosed with um, colon cancer sometime before, and he died on June 7th, and I started to speak on October 3rd. So he's 18, he was 18 months my senior, so he's like my near twin brother. So um, um, my whole family, uh, my siblings, we, we, we flew out to California where he lived. And that's interesting because we, that was like the first time my mother, there's 12 of us, I'm number 11 or 12. And that was the, so he was, he was number 10. So that was the first time, no, no, sorry, he was, a sister between us, but so he's number uh, nine. So that was the first time in in uh, in, in in like 30, 40 years, thirty something years, that we had that many siblings together at the same time. And my brother, who was in England, he called in on FaceTime, so he was there with us. And interestingly enough, ironically, he died on. Uh, I think June 17th of this year of throat cancer. Nevertheless, um, uh, as a matter of fact, my hair is shaved bald right now because my sister has cancer and her hair is gone. So I shave my head in support of my sister 
so that she'll feel she'll feel a companionship. She bald, I'm bald. We look alike. Oh, um, so, so that's that's my sister. I love I love my sister. Now, um, um, when when we went to when we went to um, when we were in California, I took him to the took him to the doctor, and the doctor said they were trying to get him into a clinical trials because he kind of fit um, what they were trying to do because he was a black man with um, a, a unique kind of colon cancer, so he was perfect for that fit. For whatever reason, he didn't get in, but the doctor said that now that in phase two, he can get in, which was going to start in 30 days. So our prayer was that he would hold on 30 more days. He died like in 14, 14, 15 more days. Um, so I'm sitting in the room with the doctor and his oncologist, and, 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 and I feel those oncologists, God bless them, he was... He, they don't know how they don't know how to tell you that listen this is an extreme long shot the likelihood is not going to work he's going to die they they can't tell you that because they don't want to destroy your total hope so um I sit in the room and I'm thinking about this clinical trial thing now a few months later I went I went to work at uh, Tuskegee University and the first issue I took up was xenotransplantation. And you could you could find an article online, just type xenotransplantation and my name Hodge and it should pop up. But I took up that I took up that that, that I was intrigued with xenotransplantation. Xenotransplantation, xeno means strain transplant. That is to take or foreign. That is to take uh, the, the kidney of a pig or some other alien animal and put it into a human. Um, so there's some there's some ethical issues there. The first one being, um, what if the person is a Muslim? <laughs> you know, they are seven day Adventists. They may not want a pig kidney inside of them. That's the first one. Did you ask that pig for his kidney? <laughs> you 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 raising this pig just to take his kidney? So there's a kind of animal rights issue. Okay, now, um, um, so after I wrote that article, because at that point, UAB, University of Alabama, Birmingham, had just received like what? I can't remember. This is an article, 20-something million dollars, because they did a lead transplant situation. So after they read my article, they invited me up to, to along with my director, to UAB to have a conversation about clinical trials. How can you get people involved with clinical trials? And we turned them down. We turned them down for a year. The reason we turned them down is, and they, they want to come to us. The reason we turned them down is, Tuskegee University is the epicenter of bioethics for Black people in America, right? People want this. If people could say, he could, they could say, you know, we went by Tuskegee and we decided to do this. Now, that would not be a lie. Neither of those things would be a lie. But the implication is that in coming, we agree with what they wanted to do. So we said that you can't come here, but we will come to you. And if we see that you're trustworthy, then we will be willing to work with you. So we went to UAB and we sat down, we had a conversation, and they said, well, we need to know um, how to get Blacks involved in clinical trials. Well, there's an overwhelming majority, uh, there's a hundred, and watch the numbers, there's about 135,000 people right now who need a transplant. But you only have 30,000 organs available each year. That means you have 100,000 people who are going to die each year who need a transplant. So these the, the pig kidney will benefit black people. 
Um, but the problem is one of the problems a kid, a, a pig, the life expectancy of a pig is five to twelve years. So that pig, well, that kidney is not going to last more than that. So then you have to replace the kidney. And so, so you can see this is very expensive and lucrative because it's going to be the billions of dollars, right? So I said, um, my my argument was, what does the informed consent say? The informed consent is a document that you have to sign that says that this is what we're going to, we're saying that we're going to do to you, with you, to inform you of everything that's happening. Because that, the men in the syphilis study didn't have an informed consent. The women back in with Dr. Sims didn't have an informed consent. So this is how we should proceed. That's what informed consent is supposed to do. So I said, I don't think I, I think we have some issues here. Because here's the ethical issue. If you, when, when I was with my brother, and they said they want to put him in clinical trials, and he's near dead. I don't care. I don't care what they asked me to sign. I was signing. Mm -hmm. I don't care because if he's near death, that's it's immoral to wait until someone is about to die and then tell him whether well, you want to participate in clinical trials. Hell yes, I, whatever, whatever you want me to do, I will do. Right? The so 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 if clinical trials is going to work. The way that it has to be done is that you don't wait till later. You got to do it now. You got to start building trust with the community that you want to serve. And, you, and how do you do it? Trust is not a moral virtue. Trust is a biological instinctive virtue. For example, you trust the air that you breathe. You're doing it right now, right? You trust the air. You don't even, ask, you don't even question it. You most times you trust the food that you eat, even if it's a little chitlins. You trust the food that you eat, depending on who cooked it, right? Who cleaned it? You 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 you, tr you trust the floor to catch you when you get out of bed in the morning. You assume that floor is there. You you don't raise questions about that. So trust is a very natural, instinctive thing to do. You trust that you know, remember the way to get home this evening. You're not sitting down there trying to fancy, unless you have some mental health problem. You're not sitting there trying to figure out how am I going to get home this evening. You pretty much trust your memory to work to get you home. So trust is not about it's not a, a moral issue. However, trustworthiness is a moral issue. It's a moral virtue, because trustworthiness says that I am going to take the time to create a sense of character and integrity and trustworthiness such that you will be willing to trust me. The person who is your mate, your husband, your wife, whomever, you you trust that person because that person in your dating process proves him or herself or herself to be trustworthy. But the moment that person obliterates your trust, you never get a hundred percent again. Now you might get close, but you won't get a hundred percent if you have a 4.0 in college. 4.0, every semester in college, and you get to your last semester, and you get an A minus, so you get a 3.9, um, 9.5 or something. You will never be 4.0 again in terms of your total curriculum. You get to be a 3.9999999. So trust, then, has to be in degrees. Um, I see Toya has her hand up. Yes, Dr. Hodge, I feel like I'm back in school, so I'm raising my hand. Doc, okay, so what you did here for me is solidifying that I should not trust these folks. You gave me a great history lesson. And so why in the world, how in the world am I supposed to be a part of a trial or 
any type of research. Like, I bet I don't. <laughs> well, let me give you three reasons. Okay. Let me, let me give you three things so that you need to ponder. Number okay. one, you have, to have a, you have to have a cost risk analysis, cost benefit analysis that demonstrates the risk. Now, if you are you are a woman and you have children, right? You're a woman, you have children, and you like uh, Angelina Jolie. She she had a mastectomy. She had a mastectomy. My 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 thing is messing up here. She had a mastectomy because she believed that that she has cancer in her DNA, breast cancer in her DNA. So she had a mastectomy. She said, I'd rather be without breast than take a chance. Now, some people would say, are you crazy? I'm not cutting my breasts off. I came with these breasts. I'm going to go ahead and keep them, right? Cost, benefit, analysis. You have to do a risk assessment. So if you see that, um, if you see that, wait a minute now, I'm in, I am I my, my I'm a I'm in a um a vulnerable situation. It might be in your best interest when you weigh your interests versus the possibilities of losing your life and you have children. How do you fall on this one? So some of people say, "Well, I'm not going to take the vaccine." Hold on, you looking at two hundred and fifty, twenty, sixty thousand people dead. You're looking at 140 people infected a day. <laughs> you willing to take that chance? So it's really, really nerve-wracking. I'm not talking about the clinical trials at this point because the clinical trials are almost done. But I'm talking about the vaccine itself. You have to start, you have to think, wait a minute. At what, at what point do I surrender? At what point do I surrender my autonomy for my best interest, because it can come back and bless me. Now, in the paper that your best interest is your life. But that's okay, what, so that's what you're wearing. My question to you is: Well, I got several questions, and we don't have all time for all the questions I have. But um, the first question is: How I know that so this vaccine not gonna hurt me five, ten years from now? That's what that, that's a very good question. And here's 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 my response. That's the, that's what I'm talking about. It's very individual because you got to look and see, wait a minute, do I want do I suffer now or potentially suffer later? Because COVID now is, is, a, is a very mysterious thing. I, one of my colleagues got COVID a couple weeks ago. He has zero symptoms, zero. I have a couple of classmates who are dead. This is some weird stuff. So like, do I take a chance and if, if 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 I catch COVID and I get the worst of it, my entire home household falls, it collapses because I do not have good health life insurance because I'm diabetic. 
You see, my whole household collapsed. So now, if so, I don't know in six months if the vaccine is going to affect me. But the likelihood is that I would catch COVID, and I'm obese. I mean, I look like you can't tell because it looks like I'm just muscular. But I'm, I'm a little fluffy. I was a fluffy when, when, when Toya knew me, but I got a little fluffy because of the diabetes and the insulin. So that's the weight, um, my dear sister. It, 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 that's, you see what I'm saying? It is something that we have to be prayerful and thoughtful about. And one of the things we argue before in that article that you read is that whomever, um, be it um, um, Pfizer or whomever, or and the federal government, whatever ill effects it causes, if it causes, that they will be responsible for the treatment. They will treat me for whatever that comes after. And the scary thing is, that's the best option over against not doing anything, and it caused me even worse, a worse scenario. So, and, and that's why, listen, I'm gonna say that I don't hate anybody. I don't hate anybody. I just have that disposition. I'm very empathic, I'm very caring, I don't hate anybody. But I strongly dislike Donald Trump. <laughs> I strongly dislike this dude. Why? Because he prioritized his self-interest, his, his finances, his family over the health of America. This thing could have been shut down a long time ago. If all, if in the very beginning, when he knew, way back in February, when he knew, he held it until after January, then the time he knew, he held it for a month and a half. If he knew and shut down the country for two weeks so that all everyone is quarantined, we wouldn't have these amount of deaths now. But See, now we're talking about right there. He wanted to be a save a whole. Lord God, I'm cussing. Lord, who is not cussing? He wanted to be for his um, presidential election. But that's how come that should come up funny. But anyway, go back, go back, go back, go back. That's the part I'm talking about right there. Like, you, prioritizing money over lives. Because one of the things, okay, so let me ask you this quick thing. We're running out of time here, but how you feel about autism? Because I feel this just in, in my 49 years of being on this world, autism didn't become prevalent into the last 10 years in my mind. That's when I started to hear a lot more about this world, but this word, but where did autism come from? I'm feeling that it's either something in the food that they've been giving women some type of injection or, or something related to where we have gotten it. And so those are the things that I think about. You tried something, you gave me something. You Because to me, we're test dummies every day with the food that we eat. They are putting all kinds of fertilizers and to keep things last longer. Man, some things that I see stay with their preservatives should never stay. That's what I did a long time ago. But because they're trying to keep things longer and so that you can have them without running back to the grocery store, we are consuming things in our bodies that don't allow us to digest on a daily basis. We're supposed to eat, body bathroom, and, and sleep. That's all we're supposed to do. And half of us don't even go to the bathroom one time a day. 
That's wrong. Nah, not me. But <laughs> I, love, I, I love when you get raw, my dear sister. <laughs> I love when the full Jamaican come out. Okay, so let me let me let me say this about autism. In um in um in nineteen eighty eight. I went to Oral Roberts University to work on a master's degree in education. And I'll never forget, autism was a paragraph in the book on the mental retardation, in the human development book, on the mental retardation. Now, <laughs> autism is volumes of books and is not mental retardation. You are 100% correct. It is something else. I have, so therefore, I have two thoughts on autism. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, um, I'm what you, I'm a Christian evolutionist, a theological evolutionist, a philosophical evolutionist. So, um, I believe that that you don't throw away science because it doesn't, because it doesn't fit into our theology. You look at your theology and you raise questions. Like the flood, when it says the whole earth was covered, well, it's, back in those days, they thought the earth was flat. So in their minds, if, 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 we, if we were in Houston when there's a flood a couple, months, a couple years ago, and we cut off all communication, we have no idea how big this flood is. We assume this is so bad in Houston that this thing might cover the entire planet. So we have no idea. So that's the world that they lived in. So that's how they interpreted it, right? So and with, 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 um, so. Uh, every as you look at evolu as an evolutionary state, we're taller than we used to be. You know, we uh, if you look if you go to a museum and you look at chairs, chairs were about six inches shorter than they are now because we're taller than we used to be. So we continue to evolve. Um, when you look at autistic persons, they have tremendous capacity to zero in on one, sometimes two things. Could it, be, it could be music, it could be art, it could be whatever, mathematics. They're like geniuses in like one thing, and uh, or two things. And 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 and, and now they lack the lack um the kind of emotion, uh, social connectivity. So there's an argument that could be made that autism is just the next range of what's happening in the evolutionary prism. That is that as some die off, though we in the future we're gonna need people who have a capacity for deeper focus. So that's one thing that could be could be going on there. The third thing that could be going on, and I did my dear sister, I think that you you are you on it. When you look at young girls having the menstrual cycle cycle at eight, nine, and ten years old. Eight years old? Come on. And, 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 and when you look at what's fed to these animals, the, the chicken and stuff, so they could grow much faster. These chickens, they, they grow faster than their legs are able to carry them. Their legs fold onto them because they grow heavy, because a chicken is born this week and is produced in three weeks. How the heck you get that accomplished? Same thing with a hog. So what's going on is they put all this product into these animals and we then eat it, we consume it, and it goes into our DNA. This, I know we're out of time, but I have a lot more to say about that in terms of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Why is it that our young black children are performing the way they do? All of this have that kind of conversation associated. So you've opened up a Pandora box of all kinds of things, but that's just the beginning of the answer. Mm. 
Okay, Doc. So clearly, you're gonna have to come back on. Yeah, we're gonna have to have part two on this. <laughs> Yeah, hard to. So, so let, I want to know what y'all think, sisters. I, I feel like I, I'm not taking the vaccine. I don't want to be in nobody's clinical right. trials. This solidified what I already know and, our, and understand. And I'm going to focus on eating as best as I can so I'm not so vulnerable. So I'm as, as, so I can be the best Toya I can be. That's what I'm going to do. How do y'all feel? Um, because I am of Caribbean descent first. Well, let me. Let me First, because I am God's child. That's hey. Second, because I'm, I'm of Caribbean descent. And third, because I already know my health challenges. I am choosing to abstain from taking the vaccine. I rather allow my health challenges to take care to take care of me. And I use the Caribbean descent because. If you notice, one of the first things that they started saying when COVID started was, are you taking your vitamins? Are you drinking your teas? Are you eating healthy? Well, even though we don't have junk, we still already drink teas. We drink ginger. We use garlic. We use um, raw herbs. So we already are protecting our body against COVID in some fact because of the things. And we don't use our things one time. We cook with it, we drink with it. Sometimes we drink rum things with it, but we use it in a variation of our day. I'd rather use those type of medics to take me through than to allow America to come kill me off. I feel that until they start really curing some stuff, I can't trust it. Mm -mm. I remember uh, being a pharmacy technician and Back when they wasn't even telling people, this is this is when H1N1 had first popped on the scene, and they didn't tell everybody that the new flat, the new flu vaccine was going to have H1N1 uh, in it, and I was like, so why didn't I tell them? people about it like what if I don't want that <laughs> and you know I I just felt like see there they go using uh some because everyone goes get the flu shot so if you want to experiment on a mass basis throw it in the flu shot everybody get the flu shot and it's free free my mom used to say free stuff will kill you and it's so true <laughs> it's so true so I don't trust it. Let me see y'all cure some stuff first. Let me see all these dollars that we have been pushing towards research and development for all these long years. Let's see that come into, into curing some stuff. Into fruition. Yes, let's see that. Because the vaccine, first of all, the, think, about, think about the flu. The flu is a virus. Everyone knows viruses mutate. So yeah, you can get vaccination on this strand that's popular in your area. Mm -hmm. But what if that ain't the strand? What if you went and, and, and visited somebody and it was a whole nother strand that you came in contact with? Now you got the same flu that you said you went and got a vaccine for. But no, it's a different strand because viruses mutate. And then it's a whole new cycle all over again. I don't got to hurry. And, and so the vaccines, the vaccines that come in our, in our community are not always the same quality with vaccines in the other communities. And we did, uh, when I worked in the radio, when we used to do the flu shot, my first time ever taking the flu shot, it was the sickest flu I ever had. Every time they come back with the flu, no thank you. No thank you. It, mm -mm. So I, I just, I'm, I'm, I have asthma. 
because uh, um, my daddy was a smoker, long story, but anyway. So I have asthma, so even when it comes to me consuming those steroids and that albuterol and the aerosol that I eat, sometimes I have to pray over the medicine because I am, what is in this little pool of liquid? What are y'all really giving me? Because I'm so concerned of what my body is already taking in. And then, you know, when you, when you have an asthma attack, you have continuous. They give you continuous treatments until your, your lungs start flowing again. Last word, Doc. Last word. My last word is when you all invite me back, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'll make myself available to discuss um, other features. Ladies and gentlemen, we have we have so many problems. We have so many problems, and not just one thing. And um, everything interconnects. There's an intersectionality that has to do with 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 health, with the mass incarceration. That's another conversation in and of itself. Um, that has to do with. Um, 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 racism and how deep it is in the DNA. Um, churches and our how our churches are constructed. Our churches are constructed almost like plantations, and so um, the way some of the some the way the way we the way we 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 harm each other rather than love each other. So we have a whole lot of there's a whole lot of other interplays that goes on that we have to have conversations about but i love what you all are doing i appreciate you thank you so much for the invitation um if you need me again i'll make myself available but these are just powerful conversations that need to take place if you have any questions for me just shoot them to me and i will do my best to respond um that's it thank you very much i appreciate you thank you so much doc yeah, okay, yeah, we, oh my gosh, we really appreciated it. Be honest, I, I think we had some kind of, um, uh, I don't know, it's like, oh, we're gonna have, it's gonna be a doc, it's gonna be so intellectual, and we appreciate you just really down to earth and be able to, to break down some of these concepts to us, you know, in, in layman terms and so forth, where, where the audience could understand, and so I told those for you could understand. <laughs> so, so thank you so much. Um, you'll definitely have to come back when you have time. We know you're really busy. And again, um, congratulations for just all of the work, all of the wonderful things that you've done, you know, for the society, for black people and your work, um, all your accomplishments. I'm, I'm proud of you. Like, like you, like, well, you're my teammate, so I'm proud of you. <laughs> thank thing. you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. I truly feel that this was a very good conversation. Um, if you are still tuning in and you have any questions you still have questions about what we talked about right now you can definitely put them in the comments we can continue this conversation in the comments if you need to but we will definitely have them back because this is a conversation that needs to be had like you said um and i i see his viewpoints i know it's important but like i said they got to show and prove on some things <laughs> so we are very grateful for y'all to tune in. Please join us next week, same place, same time. Make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe to our channel so you do not miss the next one. That's right. Thank you, guys. Bye. All right. Take care. Take care.